You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the show. Stuart Goldsmith here. And today on The Comedian's Comedian, I'm very pleased to be talking to Catherine Bohart. And you will know Catherine Bohart from things such as Mock the Week and The Mash Report and popping up here and there. Roast Battle. She did a particularly memorable and excellent roast battle, which you can find on YouTube. And you can go to her website, catherinebohart.com, to find out all about her forthcoming tour dates, which is uh, being put together, having been postponed uh, that's coming together pretty soon. But more than all of that, I hope that you enjoy the hell out of this superb conversation, which I really, really... This is this is one where Jake, who logs the episodes, and Nathan, who produces the show, both separately texted me and went, oh, man, this is a good one. So, oh, man, this is a good one. We will talk about all manner of things, uh, including Catherine's OCD and the therapeutic effect that comedy has on that, the disruptive effect, I should say, um, which uh, results in a sort of a therapeutic effect. And we will also get stuck into something I only found out like a day or two before the interview, which is her shady past as a university debate champion. Um, and that is something that's never come up on the podcast before. And I think hugely, once you know about it and what goes into it, it hugely informs her comedy and basically forms kind of just incredible, unique training for, for being a stand-up. So there are loads of kind of really resonant stuff and some surprises and some really good gear. So I hope you enjoy the hell out of this conversation with Catherine Bohart. Like, you are clearly a successful comic, right? You started, what, seven years ago-ish? Nearly seven years Five ago? Five and a half. Well, come on, 2015. 2015, right? Oh, my... Yeah, I started April 2015. What year is it now? 2021. So almost six years. Almost six almost years. Almost six years. Okay, yeah. fine. You were closer than the guest. No, no, you're this right. Be- I, but I, I definitely have, like, just let the last year not count in my math on oh so, yeah fair. so you're no you're dead right i i just have i've been like <laughs> i'm just blanking out the last year Stu. Oh, we, we will get on to how lazily you've been sitting around doing nothing for the last good year. i'm glad sure. <laughs> <laughs> um but in that time you have a significant body of work you've done all these shows you've done all this you know you've done your own shows you've been on uh, roast battle cats mock the week you've done you've done the hit list of all the things people want to be on right so does it feel like you are a success or does it feel like like how much of the oh god are you sure am i ready is um real and how much of it is affectation and how much of it is sort of like um uh kind of humility i think 
most of it is genuine fear um, about judgment of others. So mm-hmm. the idea that I would go any- on anything that is even remotely associated with being prescriptive about what and how people approach comedy seems absurd to me when I, d- I don't feel qualified to do that. And that's not because I don't think I've been successful. It's because I'm not the comic I want to be. And therefore, I think that my two thoughts were one, well, people should want to be better than me. So what am I going to tell them? And the other thing is, I want to be better than me. And so my thought was, oh, God, I'm going to listen back to this in five years and be like, I knew nothing, which is essentially what's happened every year of comedy that I've done is being like, oh, I I'm just constantly learning that which I do not know. I'm just increasingly you, aware you, of my own ignorance. Okay. And how do you feel about that process? Do you feel like that's a uh, difficult but a good thing or what? How do you feel about it? It's exciting because at least I'm learning. Like I feel like, I, and I think it's exciting because I don't think there's any way I won't become a better comic. And I think it could be 20 years before I'm the comedian I want to be, but I don't think you could do it with the regular because I do work hard and I don't think you could do it with the regularity that I do it and not get better unless you were really trying um so I'm excited by that but yeah I think it was just oh god other people will think she's too big for her boots um and the other part of me was like but also what the hell do I know and then I did have a word with myself and go oh come on you this is your job you can do this And also it's okay to, I think it's okay to speak to comics at different levels and acknowledge, I can acknowledge where I'm at and go, this is what I've learned so far. This is how I got here, but I don't know necessarily anything about the future. Gosh, I've already gotten far too raw, overwrought by this whole thing. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) I am where I am, Stu. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a fellow overwrought person. Okay, great. You're saying this is a safe space for whatever the other tenses of overwrought. Yes. Like what's the, I don't even know the word for the nussness of something. Like what's the the overwroughtness? There's probably probably, gratitude or something. We'll both regret not knowing after. Um, So no, but I think I, I overthought it and I'm very, but I am very pleased to be here and I, this podcast is one I listened to on trains to gigs for years. So it's really nice. I'm glad. I'm glad. Tell me about the comedian you want to be. Do you know anything about the comedian you want to be in 20 years? Or do you just know that are they do they do you have a sort of nascent sense of who they are? Are they you but more so? Do you have any idea of the things that would change in between you and the the comedian you want to be? I think they're me but more so. I think they're also more purposeful. I feel like this is, and this is getting right into how I write comedy, but I think that how I write, a lot of the time I feel like comedy happens to me rather than me planning comedy. So it's always interesting to me when people say things like, oh, I'm writing a routine about, and I'm like, what? What are you talking about? That idea of choosing consciously that which you want to discuss and then working it out and then producing as intended that end product is not how my comedy brain operates at all I'll have thoughts and things happen but as if I write anything in a word doc or type anything it becomes a very angsty teenage diary entry um or a poorly written holiday novel so um (laughs) but neither are funny And so 
the best way that I've learned and I have had to learn because I wanted to so badly to be best in class, good comedy writer who sits at her computer and writes out and can say, I did 10,000 words and can go, well done. I wanted so badly to be her. So I tried so hard and it never worked. And then when I started taking a notebook on stage and or an idea or a word on stage and then listening back and writing based on what came to me and then doing that again and doing that again and doing that again. I'm much funnier when I'm not trying to remember a script and not trying to talk about a specific thing. When I just, when I let myself actually say what the worst, most panicked version of me thinks. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. And, And that's when I get to the Oh, that's what you actually think. Or it makes me go, why would I say that? I don't think that. Okay, great. Then what would I say? Those are all. Money. That's nice. That's a, that's a really, particularly that second one of like blurting something out. I often think in terms of blurting, like I try and put <gasps> yeah. myself in a safe place to blurt and yeah. then record the blurt. Otherwise I won't remember any of it. And then the next phase for me is like, try not to re-perform the blurt, but try to actually find out what's in there. But that that second thing you said, the second sort of phase of it, which is you blurt something, then you go, oh God, I don't think that. But but even that's that's helpful, isn't it? To know you don't think something. That's a starting point to try and work out what you actually do think. It's so helpful. It's so helpful. And But also to go, okay, I don't think that, but somebody thinks that. Which means, okay, and, and I can sometimes feel both. Like, sometimes I'll notice my reactions to things are contradictory and, like, you know, two or threefold. So I can go... Then I go, okay, my gut reaction is this. My needy reaction is this. My initial, but then, or maybe thought through reaction is this. Because I think then you have more capacity for the audience to go, oh, I'm that one. Or, oh, we yes. shouldn't have thought that one. And she is right. But also, yeah, I would think that first. Or or they'll go, she's a piece of shit. And that's also fun. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's nice. That's a very kind of, that puts me in mind of like um, the word flourish. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's like a way of having a thing and going, there we go. Here's all of the things that could come out of that seed. Is that, is that... Um, self-taught or from a book or accidental that kind of way of opening up a topic I mean I think it's I'm not you you don't need to claim to have invented it no I I actually (laughs) think this process of writing for me comes from resignation I have tried so I try I I like when it comes to working I'm I you know I I was academic in school because I worked. I got a good marks because I tried. Like, I'm not a, and so I, and I love to be doing. I, I like the idea that I'm getting the, getting jobs done. And so I tried all of the other versions and it turns out I'm just a better comic on stage than I am on paper. And then I needed something to do with that. Like I could, that wouldn't do. I'm not a, I don't have a good enough memory and I, that feels lazy. And also I think you stagnate at a certain point with that. So then I was like, okay, I have to work backwards. I have to go on stage with little and then record the happenings thereafter and then build on it because I can't be doing nothing in between. And um, so it's, re- it's resignation that I am not the, I don't work the other way. And tell me about, are you a former debate champion? Yes, I, yeah, so, oh God, what a nerd. I am, in school I debated and then 
in uni I debated for my university but I I mean to let you into the bleak world of uh, my youth I know, I, know, I know nothing about it there are basically <laughs> there are these things called European and World Debate Championships and so like 500 universities go to this university and will debate in over a league and then knockout rounds and that's a thing I did every summer and Christmas um and yes at one point I was the best speaker in Europe and the third best speaker in the world <coughs> still hurts and it was a draw for first though so technically second don't want to talk about it and um and I think that that is if you're gonna ask massively connected to my comedy 100 percent. i'm forever telling people when when people with no comedy experience want advice like quick fix i've got to do a thing i've got to give a speech or something i always tell them just try and win the argument right yes. just don't don't prep just know what you believe and then try and win the argument and that's why i kind of picked up on it when i heard that preview of the show you did i was like oh hang on a minute that probably really helps oh i think i was learning to be a comedian I think that's why I sometimes even feel a little bit disingenuous saying I've been doing this for six years because I've been speaking to rooms full of people for years and the way I debated and the pl- the positions I debated on the chessboard were deconstructing other people's arguments and trying to make people laugh. And so okay. in a much more, much, believe it or not, more pretentious condescending manner than I do so already. <laughs> but that was my job. And so... And we did that, like, I mean, we debated every weekend and then we trained at it twice a week, like, like it was a sport. So I. Oh, okay. I've got so many questions about debating. <laughs> um, and, and let's, let's keep in our, in our back pocket the idea that we're sort of looking at this specifically through comedy, because mm. obviously there are so many parallels there. Yeah. Um, how do you train? What does training look like? Okay. So with debating at, in British parliamentary parliamentary style, which I did it in, in university, you have oh, to... Oh, there are different styles. Of course there are. Don't, honestly. We're not some model UN freaks. The point is, we, uh, we did um, VP, which means that you get your topic 15 minutes beforehand, and then you have 15 minutes, to, and your position on the table. So then you have to prep whichever side of an argument that you didn't expect. So that means you have to have a general knowledge on economic, social policy, religion, international relations, military... Um, you know, world faiths, whatever, like every topic, because it could be a multitude of things. And also, if you're going to say, like, I, we went to Botswana for one year, or we went to Berlin or the Philippines another year, you have to know the local politics as well, because it's very likely going to be a topic on that. And so you have to know how to speak, at least with seeming authority on an awful lot of things. Therefore, you practice. Okay. Okay. And you obviously, obviously one of the things there is you need to, you will often be called upon to debate things in which you believe the absolute opposite. Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. In fact, like when I look back now, I think I was often debating things that we shouldn't have been asked to debate. (laughs) (laughs) Give me several examples, please. (laughs) um, Like a very common debate um, when I was in university uh, was the trend went Gay marriage, gay uh-huh. adoption, and then cures for homosexuality. So having as a queer person to defend why que- queer conversion therapy should exist. And just like, well, it's all intellectual, isn't it? It's all an interesting study. It's all about um, being inquisitive and understanding, having empathy for the other side and not making presumptions about people as a blanket. And I'm like, well, I just don't think I should have had to stand up and question my 
self to that degree for the purposes of getting three points for a league that's judged in Warwick University of a weekend where nobody gives a shit. Um, but we did. We all cared desperately. That is absolutely fascinating. Of course you would have to because you're doing your sort of your as you said you gave us a kind of a, a the notes the the bullet points there of you know empathy and learning and how all of those things kind of work and so you you're able to do it as a technical exercise this is one of the mad things i think about uh, politics which is that people will follow people with charisma oh, pe- regardless of whether they're right or wrong 100%. so that gives you a very early introduction into that i think i've only ever used my performative ability well, not for evil. I don't think I've always used it for good. <laughs> I think I've used it for good or self-interest, but I don't think I've used it for evil. So or even without the hugely personal connection to debating, get like as if your identity and your rights are an option to be debated. Presumably, were they debating were they debating other things that we can look at and go, oh, that's catastrophically wrong and inappropriate? Were they debating, here's the case for eugenics? Oh, or were 100%. certain things off the table? No, no, no. Um, child soldiers was a debate. Um, <laughs> what's, the, what's the pro argument for it, child indeed. soldiers? It's just so efficient. Indeed. Yeah. Um, oh, well, it was probably cultural relativism, right? Which, given you're talking about predominantly white students who travel to countries that maybe aren't predominantly white, talking about, like, even talking about their local politics, right? So, like, talking about the African Union in Botswana or... Um, women's rights in countries where they aren't equivalent to our own talking about queer rights in places where it's illegal like it i mean astonishing degrees of like moral superiority from a bunch yeah. of like blow-in white teens and don't get me wrong there are also hugely wonderful things that debating does and did for me yeah and it's also why i'm comfortable being queer a hundred percent hands down no question Oh, okay. Because you've argued it. Because I've argued it. Or you've understand all the ca- the counter arguments. Yep. And but on top of that, because it was a conversation. Like it's the only time it was spoken about in great detail. It, it you know, and I was surrounded by people who were doing that on a regular basis and who and and, and who talked about language around identification and I mean like we were talking about trans rights when when I was a teenager, which, you know, I don't think a lot of kids were doing at the time. And I, we were absolutely flawed and imperfect in that. Um, yeah. But also, I understood... We were having I, conversations. Yeah, and I understood it as not just a conversation, but an important enough conversation to be a topic for debate. Like, if you if somebody chose that for a weekend's discussion, it was it was given... It was put on a pedestal. It was an important issue. And so that's that's probably why I'm comfortable with it. That's incredibly striking. God. But also, I think it comes back to that thing we were talking about earlier where I'm very used to saying the wrong thing and going, oh, no, I don't think that. And I've had so much shame. And, you know, I've, I've said things to three people writing everything I'm saying down to judge it. And gone, why have I said that I want to die? So I think I learned a, a useful skill. Is it a rule of the debated, we'll move off this in a second, but yeah. is it a rule of the debating sort of society, you know, the debating challenges, championships, whatever, that uh, it's sort of taken for granted that no one believes anything they're saying? Like they need to give you a sort of disclaimer whereby if you go out there and argue against gay marriage, 
are people afterwards going to come up and pat you on the back and say, oh, great work. I too am against gay marriage. Or is it? No. However, I think so people understand that you are like assigned a side. However, for example, how you choose to take on that defense is still will still be judged as a measure of your character. For example, you could argue queer conversion and this is like really using it for evil but I remember the only way I could sit right with arguing for queer conversion therapy was to look at the fact that not all queer people are a uniform entity right so lots of people are religious and maybe prioritize God over their sexuality and so that's how they make those individual characters but instead of saying well obviously queer people are bad (laughs) so you do have a choice so people understand it's not your belief but then you still yeah. have you still have to make choices within that as to what you're willing and not willing to say in order to defend an argument that you do or don't believe in. So, God, if you're not bored after this, do mate, this is fascinating. <laughs> this has never come up in 360 episodes. <laughs> but I think what it meant was, I am good at saying things the wrong thing, changing my mind, knowing that just because I said something, it doesn't mean I have to say it ever again. Um. Maybe knowing that that will be a judgment on me that day, but not necessarily a judgment of my character. And I think more than anything, I'm debating made me good at thinking on my feet, which is why I, I which is why I am. Um, I, I stopped myself, but I'm going to finish the sentence. Good at crowd work, a good MC, um, because I. I'm quite good at identifying premises or finding empathy or common ground and filling time while I have to do those things. Yes. And congratulations on stopping yourself from stopping (laughs) yourself, paying yourself a compliment, which you deserve. It's so hard. (laughs) Um, But yeah. So this is Catherine. I'm actually recording these blurbs in my car in a service station late at night. So I am going to get the hell on with it. You know you can go to catherinebohart.com, whereby you can also find out about Giglas, which is her online uh, comedy club, which has been thriving, uh, which has created and has been thriving during COVID times. You can find out all about that at catherinebohart.com. And you can also uh, find out about more. You can find out more about Giglas and the community slash cult thereof um, if you go to the Insiders Club, which is comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. We've got 20 minutes of extra content for you, including uh, some further, some deeper diving on the, uh, the university debating biz. And Catherine and I give you probably the first half of a conversation, the second half of which was very much off the record and does not feature on the Insiders Club. Um, But we have a really interesting uh, meeting of minds about the nature of cultivating a micro-community online and some of the pros and cons of that very, very intimate relationship that is now a staple of people who lead online gigs. So lots to enjoy there and more coming up shortly. But all of those extras, plus the I've just uploaded tonight um, the recent Nish Kumar Insiders Only Zoom Q&A. There's going to be some more of those coming soon. So there's never been a better time to sign up to be an insider and support the podcast with a minimum £2 a month or as much as you want. Everyone gets access to the same benefits at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Check the show notes for everything else myself and Catherine are up to. But for now, let's get back to Catherine Bohart. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. 
until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Seems like the move from uh, that degree and the debating championships to an MA in acting for screen to an open spot. I sort of feel like that um, to your first open spot. That background, your background is like a really good background. If you wanted to create a stand up comedian, <laughs> you could do better than going, hey, these are quite good steps to follow. They'll give you a good grounding. It's so Was funny because comedy. Oh, go on. Sorry. No, I just that's just such a mad thing to hear. And on reflection, you're probably right. But when you're in it. And I'm, I did a history degree and studied theatre at night and wasted all my time going to competitions and not studying and then faffed about doing an acting qualification that I didn't feel comfortable in. And then what 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 degree did you get? What kind of class degree did you get from your French and history? Two one. A two not one. A first. A perfectly respect, not a, a first. Perfectly respectable but degree. I mean, okay. I got a two one. But you're a winner. You're the best speaker in Europe. Yeah, no, so that's not good enough. Right? Exactly. And also, I got a two one having. I mean, I barely deserved that, given how much I... I basically did a degree in debating. Like, I, I wasted so okay. much time. But um, but when you're in it, you feel like, I'm 27. I'm absolutely wasting my life. I've wasted all this time. <laughs> so it's funny now to go back and go, oh, yes, I was just building the perfect comedian and not uh, just being a complete... Like wasting a lot of time, which is what I felt like in the time at the at the. And and what was the what was the waste? The waste was not knowing what you wanted to do, or the waste was the debating, or the waste was the temping. What, what which, which bit do you mean? I think I felt like I, all of it was. I was like I was doing the wrong degree. I should have done a drama degree. Um, or gone to drama school initially. I you shouldn't spend so much time debating when I'm not necessarily keeping up with my studies. I then after university was went to hospital for OCD and then that felt like everyone was going off to have their big lives and I was stuck. And then when I got to London to do an MA, I was like, I should have just studied this. And then I wasn't as naturally gifted at, at that as I was, you know, in my head I had been, was destined to be. And oh yeah. And then I, you know, then I tempt because I had no clue about the acting industry or even London. And it all just felt like, what am I doing with my life? And then I don't want to say I stood on a stage and did comedy and that it was all like, aha, this is where I'm meant to be because that feels cheesy. But I think that was a massive turning point. That was like my life had purpose and and it's a really like hard one to justify to people because they're like 
you're trying another thing and it's unpaid and it's what and you're doing it every night and you travel away or you're oh you're paying to do it are you you're paying to do it now um and but it i think everything sort of clicked into place once i started as as a late starter and i feel like i might have started around 27 i think i did I, it was a running joke with a friend of mine that like, oh, what are you going to do next? Ventriloquism. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It was, like, it was like, oh, you've done all of these kind of right turns. So I really, I really relate to that from a, from a, a much less, I mean, I'm, I'm not the best at anything in Europe. But um, uh, let's just go back. Let's just hover on the OCD for a second, if that's okay. Please. Just as a result of like, what do you know about your OCD? I've heard a lot of people who have pure OCD and you, I think, have got old school OCD where you wash up a lot. Yes. Uh, not my hands, so not quite the uh, stereotype, but I basically have what is, uh, there's like about seven different um, medical classifications of OCD. Mine is called perfectionism. It's focused around order, symmetry, cleanliness. Um it comes with a happy little helping of body dysmorphic disorder, as often perfectionism does. Um, and it's about control of the space I'm in and the body I'm in. And what do you understand about where it comes from? Is it like fluke or is it do you understand that it has some origin in your life? There are lots of theories on this. So there's neurological differences sometimes in people with OCD a lot of the time in terms of like pathways and serotonin and, and it's essentially an extreme anxiety disorder there's also like statistics that would suggest an awful lot of time eldest children have it and um, because it's to do with duty and um an awful lot of time like you can I have largely no interest in working out where my OCD comes from um uh, because I have it and I don't think I'm not, I think it's an easy way of not dealing with it to go, but let's ponder even longer where it might have, I'm like, OCD loves a chat. It's like, it would, it loves a chat. It's a real good talker. And it, what it hates is when you do things that disrupt it. So I try to focus on just doing the things that disrupt it, if that makes any sense. And what sort of things disrupt it? Um. So essentially my OCD is a bit like having, like compulsions are essentially a lie, right? They're a promise your brain offers you that things will be better after you do it. So if you clean the house again, you'll feel calmer and everything will be better. Not true. So if you do the thing which disrupt it, I don't clean the house, wait, and you're still okay, then maybe it was a lie. Okay. At which point you diminish its authority. It has less you take it less seriously next time. And if you keep doing that, then it's just a weird person in your head who keeps trying to get you to do stuff that you don't really need to do. Um, that's how I would describe that's how I describe it. That might not that might sound insane or not be helpful to other people, but that's how I gotcha. see my brain. Okay. And does it have an effect on your comedy, on either your the way you do comedy? Does the circumstances? I mean, my first most obvious thought is there's a lot of shitty green rooms out there. Yeah, you know, back when we're all travelling up and down, you know, motorways or train stations or whatever. There's a, is there a conflict with any of the characteristics? Oh yeah, the entire lifestyle is terrible for anyone who likes structure, cleanliness, or control for sure. <laughs> oh, so. Oh. 
Oh gosh, yeah. let me just let me just insert how how much have you enjoyed the routine of the last year? Oh divine. Oh my years? gosh. <laughs> I've been, oh my I've god. I've never exercised so much or slept so well. Um but also but I think for me how it has affected my comedy is that it's given me something to talk about. And also, I don't know my OCD is a root of my sadness a lot of the time or vice versa, I don't know, but the for me a lot of my OCD is linked with shame of being bad. And since ever since I started doing comedy, it's like you get given permission when you feel incredibly ashamed, incredibly bad about yourself to, to just this tiny little window of reprieve that goes, cool, 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 cool. But um, is it funny? Could the worst thing you've ever done be funny? And that has, for me, like, it would be a lie not to say that I think comedy has helped my me deal with OCD. Yeah. Because it's just diminished that, ever so slightly diminished, the black and white that I live in, where I'm either good or bad. And I, yeah. and so I think it just makes that grey area a little bit bigger. And, um, yeah. That's why I think that is an incredibly solid. Thank you. That's a really solid argument for a sort of pro stand up as therapy. That's like the only good argument in favor of stand up as therapy. Like my feeling on art is it doesn't need to be an artifact to be admired. It can also a tool to be it can be a tool to be used. Right. And that's part of why it's part of why it's very difficult for me to uh, recognize any sort of measurement of success or or anything like that with with comedy, because part of it is the sheer the sensual experience of doing it and the joy and all of those sort of things. And they, they are kind of completely contradictory. They're completely contrary to an idea of it being a perfect thing. So yeah. to hear that for you, it helps nudge rather than become uh, kind of grappled by your OCD in terms of gigs have to be perfect. It actually is the opposite of that. It has a genuine therapeutic quality whereby it can budge it out of the way because it's, important on a whole different it's it's almost like um one of the things i found really helpful with my mental health is having children because they're more important than whatever bullshit i'm going through now I, with all due respect to anyone with much more serious conditions than i and um, who also has children and maybe struggles with it in my specific case a lot of the it's not indulgence but it does remove the possibility like you've got to fucking get up and deal with your child absolutely so you can't ruminate absolutely and also that idea of like things can't be perfect I think that's true with gigs and it's true with kids like but they still have to get done and and that's I think that's been a really lovely thing about comedy is I can say exactly the same things in exactly the same order in exactly the same way to two different rooms of people and one gig I can smash and the other gig I can die slow painful deaths at like such that it feels like I'm having multiple deaths in one gig like I and that is a really important thing to learn to be comfortable with as a person who struggles with needing things to be perfect it's like oh no it's not in your control that's so I'm so pleased to hear that for you obviously it has like you know some things where it's like, oh, I'm probably very hard on myself, but I, I'm hard. On, I'd be hard on myself, whatever I do, because I like everything to be right and perfect. And those are things I have to, you know, contend with. But I think there's part of me that has a mental illness that 
you know, is is the extreme of rational things, but the the appropriate level of those things are still part of my person. And, you know, I am a well-trained hard worker because OCD <laughs> doesn't let you be lax. And so those things are good. Like, you know, I still have, I think I have a strong work ethic and I think that's, it's not, it's not entirely because of my brain, but I think, and the way it malfunctions, but you know, there's some of that that's there, which is good too. I'm obsessed with comedy. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. Sorry, obsessed in the sense of obsessed in italics, because (laughs) you are a person who has obsessions. Yeah. I mean, yeah, probably, but, um, but I think that's better than being obsessed with my own badness. I understand. Yes. God, that idea of your your shame about your badness mm-hmm. and the release from those things. Like, what a wonderful gift to give someone who feels shame. Just as you said, but is it funny? Oh, my gosh. Because if it is like, the, the you know, the, the way in which we all, I guess, to a greater or lesser extent, regard comedy as a means of getting, <laughs> I don't know who said this, getting cash back on awful things that have happened to you. But is it funny? It's like a release valve on this huge pressure tank. Is to just go, cool, but is it? it because, I, in the, because everything that has been bad before are like things that make me unique and give me things to say now. Well, then that just takes a whole load of even retrospective guilt and shame off of them because it was leading somewhere. And that's obviously... I'm not saying let in a in a like um if only I'd known my path was going to take me here. I just mean like they're useful now. And that makes them less painful. The one thing I will say about for me, as a person with good days and bad days, comedy is an amazing career. Because I set my own diary and because I'm in charge, I don't have to go. I'm sorry, I don't have to send an email that says, I'm sorry, I can't come in today because I have been up since four because I'm so full of anxiety. I can get up and see how I feel. And maybe by 10 or two, I'll feel better anyway. So then I don't have to have made a call on the gig that night yet. And often it cheers me up. And it's an achievable amount of work as well, a gig. So... I don't have to go, I can't get on a train to go and work for nine hours. I just have to go, oh, I could just go and be good enough for 15 minutes. That's so much more manageable. So I just wanted to flag that as well. That's. I think that's really interesting. I want to just pick up that idea of being good enough and work out where in the if the, if the balls in the air currently are work ethic and desire for success and undoubted ability and hard work and those kind of things. Um, what does career success mean to you? Are you motivated? Is part of your work ethic to win comedy, in to be the best comedian in Europe, as opposed to the uh, the best uh, speaker? Like, is, what what does that what does that mean to you? Is, no. is there any kind of relationship between those? Things? No, I think it's amazing that you can't be. I think that's so good. I love that there is no, that it's always moving, that you can be great today, terrible tomorrow, amazing the next day, fine on the day after. Um, and that everyone's 
like to me the best comedian in the world is other people's least favorite comic like they can't even talk about them um without telling you why they hate them and or how they saw them one time and they were terrible so that means that they're a bad person and like that's so you can't win at it which I think is really helpful so in terms of what success means to me for me it's twofold and I I can't believe I'm gonna be this honest one do I think I'm getting better Am I better than I was before? Do I like what I'm doing? Do I like my show better? So I I want to be getting better all the time. I don't have any interest in not developing. And I'll be honest, part of the reason I think that I've done a lot of the things I've done so far is I needed to. I was and probably still am motivated by money. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't like it needed to be my it needed to be a job I got paid for or else I couldn't do it um, because I need I need money and because I didn't have any. And so I think um, that helped me. It doesn't help everyone that need, but it did help me. People don't often talk about that. And I appreciate you being honest about that because, yeah, no one talks about it. It's sort of seen as... Why do you think no one talks about it? Um, because I think if you say that... A couple of things. I think there's an, obviously there's a group of, a lot of privilege in art um, because that makes it more accessible and more sustainable long-term and probably gives you things, gives you more aid in achieving things. Um, Whether that's by like having help with things or comfort to do them in or safety to do them in. But I think the other, the inverse of that as well is in order to, if I feel like, when I say I needed to make money, I'm giving people permission to go, oh, see, like maybe it's just, maybe it's the drive to work hard actually is good for people. Maybe that's what makes them get things done. And it's like, I shouldn't have needed it so much some of the time. I like for, it's also why I have spent an awful lot of my comedy career running from club doors to train stations because I couldn't afford taxis and that's not okay or you know I shouldn't have needed it that much where I had to make a choice between like those things um but I I think it's uncomfortable I also think it makes people sound the other problem is one it diminishes it makes you sound like you don't think that there should be more equality which I, I obviously think there should be so it makes you feel like you're failing the other people you feel like you're then speaking for but the other thing I think the more pretentious concern is that if I talk about money if I say I I do partly do comedy for the money that somehow diminishes my artistry and I think that's a big one I think that really puts people off talking about money because but artistry without consideration of monetization is an absolute privilege yeah, it is, isn't it? And it's part of the conversation about privilege to think that, oh, no, well, we don't like to talk about the money because we're artists. That is a privileged position, but, oh, isn't it's it? And it, it it's, a, it's a position born of, of privilege, of going like, well, we don't have to have a conversation yeah. about money. And actually, I got a really helpful piece of advice at the start. You're self-employed. There are very few metrics. So if you don't want to stagnate, you have to create goals and measures for whether or not you're achieving them. And it it stops you looking left to right it stops you wondering if you're doing enough. It basically means you can put like a marker in the sand for in 12 months time, I want to achieve these five things. 
then you can essentially give yourself an end of year review. Money is a valid measure of, not a singular measure, but a valid measure of whether or not other people like what you're doing and whether or not it's plausible that you can continue. And if you don't have money, like, like you know, the first year I did comedy as my job job, I made nine grand. The following year, I'm, I'm really uncouth to talk about numbers. The following year... Love it. It's only you and Maria Bamford have ever talked about but numbers. But the following year, it was 23. <laughs> to yeah. me, that is a massive indication. I can make this happen. Yeah. I can pay my way. Nobody else is going to pay my way. So I have to ask that question. So sorry to be so uh, very non-British to talk. But like, I needed it to know that I wasn't mad to give this a shot. Because I'm, I, I'm up for the risk, but like... I, d- I also don't want to be delusional. And and yeah. measure money is a measure. There are other measures. Are you in the clubs you want to be in? You know, do you have an agent? And those aren't, none of them are singular measures. But combined, they tell you, oh, maybe this could happen or maybe I should get a job. That is that is a really good point. And I don't want to lose lose uh, sight of another good point you made, which I, I, I feel is has similarities. In regards to the money thing, I think I started thinking about the world differently about three years ago because I accepted to myself that I want to make money. And I had always felt like, well, if you do that, you're the baddies. Do you know what I mean? You're the bad guys because the whole thing for me is like, ah, it's me and, you know, it's my wits versus the world, right? That's how I felt for a lot of my career, almost certainly wrongly. And the world did pretty fine in that particular battle. (laughs) But, um, But I... I didn't like to admit that I wanted to make money. I would feel craven about taking jobs that offered me security over glorious art, you know, and recognising actually that is valid. And just hearing you say that, I think that's a really good point. It's not a singular measure, but it is a measure. And without measures, where are you? You're just kind of noodling around. And I have done a lot of noodling around. But also, good luck to if you can noodle. What a blissful... I'm not judging it. Sounds blissful. But I I personally don't have somebody who nobody's coming to save me if I don't save myself in in terms of money so I have to make sure I'm not doing that because 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 I agree with you in terms of the goodies baddies but there's a point at which you get to where you're like either I commit my life to the deconstruction of capitalism or acknowledge I exist within it and then understand that I am not a bad person for the the requirement of security. Yeah, yeah. The other the other point that I think has parallels that you mentioned earlier on was, which something which I just want to just hover on for a second because I think it's brilliant, is your ability to take the fact that you can't win, your delight in the fact that you can't win comedy. Because I struggle with envy. And I often, this has sort of come up, I've talked about this in a couple, a couple of episodes ago. Um, I suppose that I I do a lot of holding forth and broadcasting on the idea that envy is immaterial and there is no such thing. And, you know, it's not a race, it's a dance, as Simon Munnery said. All of that kind of stuff. I love all of that. And I, I, I spoke recently about how I had to recognise that I love all of that stuff because I feel it very deeply and keenly and it means a lot to me. I am a deeply envious person. But and it's, we're so... As much as I... Go on. I, go on. I, I just think we're so judgmental of jealousy. Like, we're so judgmental of it. It's a natural 
thing, but I think that I, I found a way to make jealousy really useful for myself, which is to say, like, I had a good therapist and she was, she was like, oh, jealousy is really helpful because what it does, if you're smart with it, is identify wants and needs you might not have otherwise identified. So it's like, okay, instead of going, oh, I hate that person. Here's what's wrong with them and why they don't deserve the job. It's like, oh, cool. I didn't know that I wanted that job. And also sometimes, a lot of the time when I feel envy and I go, huh, I, I guess I want that. Oh, oh no, I don't. Oh, then it's fine. Oh, okay. But if I just went, if <laughs> yeah. I just went, oh, you're a piece of shit for feeling jealous or went into the je- jealousy spiral, neither of those are helpful. But if I just go, oh, what's the one to need? Is it real? No, it's just, a, that's a really nice filter. And I, I'd quite like some money this week. Like. Your therapist is very good. <laughs> but, I just, but I don't think that it's. It's totally normal. Like we're all working really hard and sometimes comedy and like comedy is not a fair game. Like I think that's the other thing I knew very early on and I I was very honest with myself about like I think unfortunately we're sold this version of the world where like if you do all the things by the rules as fairly as you can and you work the hardest you will get the most outcomes or at least you'll get a fair outcome. But that that's not this industry. No, no, you're right. You're right. And I should say as well, when I say you've got a good therapist, what I mean is what a great student. <laughs> because because you really have like, I, I'm familiar with those arguments that you, that your therapist has made that you espouse. Um, but you seem to have a good framework of a brain for going, oh, I've taken that. I've learned it. I haven't just heard it. I've learned it. And now I can feel it. And but actually, I wonder if that's easier for me because... I've had quite a bit of success early and I didn't grow up wanting to be a comedian and I think a lot of bad things happened before comedy that make me maybe too grateful like I'm I'm not too grateful but like the worst thing that could happen to me isn't never getting live at the Apollo. And I really want to do live at the Apollo. Do you know what I mean? Like, but it's not the, the much, many worse things have happened. So maybe I, I don't know. I just, it's easier for me to have that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I think, um, I think also you do, you seem to have, uh, as a result of yourself and your background maybe in, in in debating maybe that even comes into it as well and the therapy you seem to have quite a good you seem to know the things that that you seem to have a good toolkit for dealing with the things that are challenging that you find challenging do you know what I mean that idea of like getting jealousy feeling jealousy oh well done me I've recognized that I'm feeling jealousy again let's find it is it useful is it not useful great well now we have a result Move I on. wonder if part of it again hypothesizing I think I had to do that as a woman before I had to do that as a comedian. The world wants to pit women against each other a lot. And so I think for my well-being earlier on in my life, I've had to go like, am I going to look at any woman who's thinner, younger, you know, prettier than, am I going to spend my whole life hating other women or am I going to go, what's going on with me? And so comedians are just an extension of, it's like the same practice, but different ball game. But I... 
I don't know. I, I, I don't want to make it sound like I don't get it. I do get it. I get jealous, but I just think we're so judgmental of that. Like, and I've been jealous and, but I think I had an, I was like this anyway, but then I had a weird time in Edinburgh the first time I did a debut show where I didn't think that I was going to get, or I didn't expect to be nominated. That wasn't me going, I wasn't, didn't go up like, this is going to happen. But a huge amount of people made that presumption on my behalf. And sorry, this is, I don't know if this is an important, like a, this makes me sound like a narcissist, but a lot of people were like, this is going to happen. And I, enough people say that to you and you're only human to start going, maybe it could happen. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, if you told me the year before, I would sell out. I would put on extra shows. I would like my show. I would make other things from that show. The show would be something my dad was proud of. And it's, you know, as much about him as me. I'd have been like, absolutely amazing. Um, But instead, I just had shame. Like, I just left that Edinburgh being like, I let everyone down. How embarrassing. And jealousy of people who got nominated because I felt like I failed and they didn't. And it was only the following year going back and watching loads of, because re- I didn't go to many shows that year, watching loads of shows I thought were amazing that didn't get nominated that I was like, well, obviously it's subjective. You can't win. There's, this is so, you know, if you had a different eight people judging, it, but also it's not the be all and end all. I think the other thing was having a year after that where I still worked, worked plenty, mm-hmm. um, I don't know why I brought that up except to say that I think it's when I was my most I had that like little devil on my shoulder the most going well look at everybody else what everybody else is doing and then I was like oh it the thing that is the measure of success this week that it's easy to be jealous of moves so fast in comedy it changes week to week Mm. so when they're making a series of mock the week it's whether or not you're on mock the week but then that series was, series will end and somebody will make some, something else and then that's the measure. So you have to have your own more constant goals, I think. How, I totally agree with that. How do you, how would you, um, how would you offer to the listener a, a kind of a, a bullet point care package of how to start thinking like that. Specifically what you said before, you said it was like you were delighted. You said, isn't that brilliant? Isn't that brilliant that you can't win? Because I feel like you can't win, but I don't often feel like it's brilliant that you can't win. It's so good. It's so good. So, I mean, I I I want to finish this conversation feeling that it's brilliant you can't win for the rest of my life. So please do that to me now. It's amazing. It's a, I think the reason it's so good is because it doesn't mean there aren't trophies. They just get passed around. More people get to win. Like, and also multiple winners can exist at the same time. Like, that's what I think is so cool about it is that you can, that Bobby Mayer can exist and Catherine Ryan can exist and London Hughes can exist and Acaster can exist and Phil Wang can exist, but Jordan Brooks can exist. And they're all (laughs) somebody's favorite comedian. And I love all of their comedy. 
that's so much more interesting to me than somebody coming along to a lineup of one of those and going, choose. I, how do I, how do we, well, then only one of them. That's so boring. I, I also love that you can't win because then it's not up to you. Like you do your stuff, you, and if people enjoy it, they enjoy it, but also it's flexible. Like if you're responsive to audiences and I know like people, I think sometimes like the purists in art are like, art should not be reactive. It should be reflective or art should neither be reactive or reflective. It should be an endpoint. But in comedy, I think, you know, you're predominantly checking if it's funny and if it's not funny as it, if people aren't laughing at it, it damn well better be important. And if it's neither of those things, grand. Cause there's just another idea along the, like, you know, we're not, we're not so profound. It doesn't take us four years to sculpt something to have people go not into it. It takes two, you know, two nights to go, well, it's not working. Um, and I love that. I just think it makes it all much more flexible and, and it means you can just trod your own little path. And I think that, but a big part of that and the only way that that is comfortable for me is to set my own goals on a yearly basis and to make sure if I wasn't achieving those, I guess in many ways I've made it so that I can win, but just in my own little metric. If you have one quality which got you here, besides your ability to do comedy, what is it? Um... I really hate being bad at things. That's nice. You really hate being so bad if at I what does it mean to you to be bad at something? If I had to be bad, I would never set myself up. I never put myself, in, I very rarely put myself in situations where I can only be bad, where that's the only option, right? So I didn't play a lot of sport in school, right? Because I was like, I can, I can only lose. The ceiling is low. <laughs> Whereas, yeah. um, but things I think I have any sense that I could be and and comedy did that it went oh you're obviously terrible because you're because even if you're the best of the new you're still terrible in because that's like you so much to learn but or you only have five minutes and that means nothing so good luck with that but um I had this sense of like I could be better at this and I hate that I'm not and you can call that work ethic or you can call that ego or you can call that deep insecurity. Um, but <laughs> I think that's probably what got me. It's also what makes me curious. Like I, you know, I'm, I'll go, I need, I, if being bad at this is not knowing everything about it. Okay. I need to ask questions. I, I, it, may, it means I work hard. I will inquire. I will review. I will listen back. I will. Yeah. I think maybe the great great answers and and also i'm interested in that in terms of the delight in the fact that it is unwinnable you want to be better than yourself like that's a kind of classic thing isn't it that's a that's a really good bullet point you're only competing but with, with yourself. i think it's a i think that's a very like well-rounded way of putting it like to be like you just have to be better than yourself i'd say mine's a little more toxic like it's like um and a little more arrogant like 
some part of some some unreasonable part of me thinks this you could be really good and so I just keep I'm just chasing after that what is your favorite opening line of a different of another comedian He has a couple, but pretty much anything Tim Renko opens with is divine and divinely drawn out <laughs> such that no matter how many times I witness him subvert a thought a room shouldn't have been having, I still <laughs> clap my hands preemptively with glee at the shame he is about to pour upon them. Great answer. What great idea did you try once and never again? Like a bit? Either a bit or uh, a concept for a thing. Or oh, a... I'll be honest, the main thing that comes to mind when you say it is wearing jeans. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I should be a person who can wear trousers on stage, but I can't. Why not? Why not? Why can't? What happened? Listen, I know you're what supposed happened? to be able to, and you probably something to do with authenticity or whatever. But I, I have a uniform. I love my uniform. I like my dresses and my makeup. And when I go on stage without them, I feel. Like I have less authority and more self. I, t- I focus too much inward on what I hate about myself and not enough outward on whether or not they're having a good time. Um, and I just yep. feel more powerful in my uniform. And yeah, but then I had a big talk with myself about feminism and authenticity and, um, you know, the power of the aesthetic over the content and so i wore jeans and i've done a gig with no makeup and it was terrible then i won't be doing that again you really gave it one try and you went that's it definitely not because you what you couldn't get it out of your head or you couldn't get out of of my head fascinating what is your biggest failure just one (laughs) yeah your biggest professionally what is the biggest thing you've fucked up in comedy I mean, had a podcast about love for a season. That wasn't a genius idea. Um, It's hard to look at it as a failure, I guess. But I guess technically, like, I the first five minutes I filmed for television didn't make the air. Um, and I remember what was that? It was for Stand Up Central. Um, okay, and. I think I've been doing comedy for two years. I probably had no right being there. I was absolutely, absolutely petrified, like physically ill with nerves, so anxious, shaking. Um, And I just, and I was both relieved and devastated that it didn't make the air and thought that was the end of me. Um, And now I'm like, thank God it didn't air. (laughs) I hope it's been burned. (laughs) Like, but, um, and I, I think that in general, that speaks to like, there are some things I got quite early that I wish, I don't wish I didn't get, but I wish I understood my limitations in and wasn't so hard on myself for not being the best at Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? That's really good to hear because look at that. You did your first TV gig. It didn't make it to air and you didn't get sacked from no. comedy. That's good to I hear. I didn't. I've, I I've done 
that same material well on television since. So I didn't even have to throw away all this stuff. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's I just good. was too <laughs> nervous to speak or be on television. <laughs> like, and that's okay because it's freaking weird if you've never stood on a stage and had eight or nine cameras, some of which are moving in the air, and then a consciousness that it was going to like be broadcast to the nation. If you don't feel nervous about that without the practice, which you need to make you feel certain of yourself. It doesn't make you a bad comic. It just makes you a very new one. Um, What is the funny thing about you? I try so hard. Is that is that that's such a good answer? I deliberately left that question extremely vague, so thank you for running with it. Is it, I think I don't know whether you went with where I expected you to go, <laughs> but I don't know. But maybe you did. So what I'm asking is, um, uh, is that the funny thing that the audience? I see think about so. You, or is that the funny thing that you laugh at yourself? I think I could be both. I mean, I guess why the audience laugh at me, I don't. I'll never know. Um, Come on. But, well, I, it's weird. I, I'm I think I try really hard like a lot of what I'm doing on stage is trying to make sense of something that I did or I said or that happened or I'm trying to unpack why the world's the way it is when it doesn't really shouldn't be or I'm trying to explain myself when nobody asked um but I think I am too honest and that is maybe why they laugh. Sometimes I, I can't help myself but overshare. And I think the I move status very um a lot, I think, on stage. I try to be high status and frequently undermine myself or am undermined. Um, so I, I, I don't, but, but those are still trying, right? I'm trying to give one thing yes. and the other keeps coming yes. out. Um, I try not to right. overshare, but then I can't help myself. With what commonly held belief about comedy do you disagree? That you have to be a sad boy. <laughs> That's a trope, I think, rather than a belief, isn't it? No, I think there's a belief that you have to be sad oh, maybe to be it's a funny. Belief. I think there's yeah. a belief that there is a value in maintaining unhappiness for the purposes of creative output. And I disagree. Are you happy? Not always, but I'm content. I don't think happiness is a, like a static, no more than I think sadness or anything is something that is. That's why I think it's even in of itself an artifice, like to have to keep maintaining on deep sadness. It's very rare that those things are constant. And. Yeah, I just I just think it's it can be really detrimental to creative people to think that you have to impose that on yourself at all times. Um, and I actually think a lot of humour comes from a joyful place and that 
you didn't not that you're it's still accessible to you as well it's like the idea that you have to remain sad at all times in order to have access to sadness as opposed to I'm best able to make fun of the worst times in my life now that I am content again because I can understand why they're funny as opposed to and and why they might be funny to other people whereas if I take myself so seriously that they have to be sad it's harder for me to get out of that but I I think it comes from a gendered notion of like male genius and what kind of behaviors we want to have people accept in us because we are creatives and I think it's really toxic So that was Catherine. I enjoyed that immensely. Properly came out of that one buzzing. And uh, Catherine, like anyone with any class, spent the next few days panicking and worrying if it would be good enough. I hope you will agree that that was absolutely prime ComCom pod. So thank you very much to Catherine. Thanks to Nathan Wood for producing the show. Thank you to Jake Crossland for the logging. Peter Dobbing is your podcast consultant and Rob Smouten did that wonderful music. I have been Stuart Goldsmith today. There is no... I've been Stuart Goldsmith today and every day and you can contact me info at comedianscomedian.com and at ComComPod on most social medias, but I don't check all of them. Um, But the today bit was about the fact that this, yes, sorry, today, tonight, from my perspective, there is no post-amble because I'm in a car park and it's raining and I'd like to get home. So I'm going to do that. Uh, Thank you to everyone who's been corresponding. Thank you to everyone in the ComCom Facebook group. I haven't been mentioning that on the podcast recently, um, but there's been some great correspondence in in the Facebook group, some thriving community stuff in there. So sign up, and if you want to get in, you do have to answer those questions so that I know you're not a crazy spammer. And even if you do answer the questions, if you then come in and spam uh, advertising for your own podcast or comedy night, then uh, you will be very gently but abruptly wrapped on the nose with a piece of rolled up newspaper but of course the upside to uh, that uh, rolled up newspaper tapping behavior uh, is that we have a very positive and thriving comedy community so i hope to see you there comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for 20 minutes of extras uh, all about the nature of cultivating and harnessing a micro community and indeed some of the pitfalls of undergoing uh, a huge personal life event when committed to regularly checking into that community in a performative way. Lots of stuff on that uh, at the Insiders Club. Thank you once again to Catherine. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful break. I mean, it's the Easter holidays now. It's the, it's the Easter school holidays. So even though you've had Easter, if you, if you don't have children, you're just like, well, that was egg day. I'm all done. I've now got 10 days with the kids off school and the kid, the older kid, who is now school age, is off school. And we're going to uh, make the most of the relaxation of the UK lockdown rules, the partial relaxation. And we're going to go and do some holiday business. Holiday business. It's called a holiday. It's not holiday business. It's a holiday. So no show next week. Uh, have a wonderful second half of Easter holes if you're having them. And if you're not, do something else with your time. I'm not your mum.